Thanks for the opportunity to be here at, uh, this is a fast break, but they gave me uh, time to pop three popcorn bags uh, instead of two, or maybe to eat one ready-to-eat bag, Oscar. I don't know how long it takes to eat a bag like that, but I, I'm fortunate to be here, and it is good to be back. This, uh, and my job is to cover some, or talk about, no pun intended, some cover crop projects that I'm part of. I've uh, been um, blessed to be part of. And it's like coming for, full circle for me because I, I came off a diversified farm in Illinois with uh, livestock and alfalfa and clover and oats and corn and soybeans and, and sheep and cattle and chickens and you name it. I, and then I spent a couple of years in, in Southeast Asia working in diverse cropping systems there as part of Peace Corps. Came back and I did my uh, PhD in intercropping work and then my first job was out at Clay Center where this photo is taken at. So Richard and Teresa and Ann and I spent, uh, well, we spent 22 years there, just south of where this picture was taken is where we lived. And, but the landscape there has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, and you can see it here in this photograph, uh, just taken straight west of Clay Center, where, where a hybrid seed field, uh, when the mail rows were destroyed, turnips were seeded in, and cattle were, were ready to graze there. But uh, this, this talk isn't about me, it's about the people that are working beside me and with me, and these are a few of the people. Darren Redfern uh, is a, a crop and forage residue management specialist, has been a close colleague in almost everything I've done. Chris Proctor uh, was here earlier this morning, he is now Extension uh, Weed uh, Educator. Uh, Humberto Blanco is, is here in, in our crowd, is one of the co-PIs on this big project, Ed Barnes, <laughs> I couldn't get a picture of Ed overnight. So there's Ed, he's a, a research technologist out at Clay Center that helps us immensely. Uh, Katia uh, Kohler-Cole is the postdoc on the cover crop project I'll be talking about briefly. Angela Bastidas is a PhD candidate, or a PhD student in, in a, doing work on cover crops. And Justin McMacken is a intern that served with me this last summer. You'll see some of the benefits of that work. He's a not only a, a PhD candidate in entomology, but is also a doctor of plant health uh, candidate. So good team of people around us, and this is just a, just a few of the people that I'm working with. And part of the thing, I'm, I'm, this full circle part, is uh, just in Sunday's paper in, in the Journal Star was a quote from, from our LICOR colleagues that apparently one of their mission statements or ideas is understanding nature's chaos. So when I say I'm coming from full circles, because there for a while I served just working in corn and working in soybeans, and it's relatively simple compared to, to the systems that uh, we're trying to work with. So I'm trying to, we are trying to understand nature's chaos. So what's a cover crop? There's a definition of it, covers the ground. Uh, the thing that this definition leaves out is this little bit here about forage production, and you can argue whether cover crops are forage crops or not, but that's beyond my time limit here. And this is beyond my time limit too, because uh, reportedly, cover crops do a great deal. Um, you need to read uh, Humberto's article uh, that just came out, didn't it, Humberto, just a, a few weeks ago in Agronomy Journal, where he goes through with the rest of us and faithfully documents where's the research behind a lot of these claims. So read that for your uh, enjoyment. Uh, this is a figure I, that you've, uh, you added in there, Humberto, that talks about some of the ethics of 
why I'm doing what I'm doing and maybe what the rest of you are doing too because uh, if you look at uh, soil organic uh, concentration over here on this axis and this is just a, a, a concept piece, isn't it? Uh, Umberto is not technically based on solid data but it's just a concept of the way soil, soil organic carbon has changed over time and various ways we can re, uh, mitigate those losses and one of those is cover crops and that's why it's fun to be part of this new, uh, new adventure for me. But I say it's a new adventure and then you look at this kind of chart that uh, Darren put together. It'll be in the, uh, we'll be talking about this at the crop production clinics this, this year so this is in draft form now but Darren put this together. The names in blue there are agronomy members but when you, when you get here, you say, well, gosh, your people have gone before us. Uh, uh, Lion and Hergert's paper was just published. David Nielsen from Akron, Ohio, or Colorado was part of that study. Just published, they've done a lot of work on cover crops in very dry environments out in the panhandle. Uh, Dan Walters was part of a project here, uh, was following soybeans back in the early 90s is when that work was done. Power and Corner Power was with USDA, has done a lot of work on that. But here, in addition to these agronomy members, Mary Drunowski in animal science is working hard on cover crops alongside the rest of us. I'll scan this list. Chris Proctor is there. Paul Yasa, I can't forget, Paul is doing a lot of work just out at the Rogers Farm, just east of town. Swat Ermak is doing work around the state, some of it in seed production fields. Um, Bill Krantz up at Northeast is doing work on cover crops. I'll, I'll highlight one of our studies that we're working with him on soon. Keith Gluen and Laura Thompson with the, the on-farm research network are doing work on cover crops. And so there's a lot of work that has happened and is going on. I'm gonna highlight this project right now that's funded by the Soybean and Corn Board briefly. Uh, you can see the, uh, the PIs on that, including a lot of people in this room. Uh, Richard's here and Tom or uh, Char Charles Shapiro and, uh, and several of us are here, some are not, working with uh, lots of people from across the state. Four locations for this study, sponsored by the Corn and Soybean Board, two dryland in the east, and then the two irrigated ones in south central and out toward the, the last one there in, near Colorado is at Brule. So uh, Tim Shaver's uh, helping coordinate that. The idea of the study is this is a one schematic of it. We're working in corn, soybean systems and continuous corn systems, so three cropping systems. Uh, the idea is that we're seeding cover crops about dense stage on corn, so we're overseeding, trying to simulate uh, aerial seeding there, but we're also coming in, so that would be a, a period like this. We're also coming in after harvest and, and drilling of, of five different species of cover crops or uh, I guess some mixtures there included. So uh, we're, we're working in those four locations with these kinds of systems. In addition to corn soybean systems and soybean corn systems, we're working in continuous corn systems too. Here's some photographs of, of what it looked like uh, just a few weeks ago broadcast into standing corn and standing soybeans. Those are our five different experimental treatments there with a cocktail on your right. Uh, just seven species mix that uh, the green cover folks uh, fixed up for us and then a combination of the other uh, species there as well. I think I'll pass on the graph that talks about data other than the 
other than to show that we've got a lot of interactions. Uh, this is spring dry matter on the part of the cover crops here. Um, a lot of interactions. You can see at Brule, basically, we had no growth at all. So that's part of we, you know, I think, Corby, you talked about bookending our studies. We've got the best of both. Absolutely nothing to uh, pretty good growth and responses. Angela's working on a study where she's looking at five different planting dates for cover crops. And they're in the, the right part of the uh, table here. From planting at the same time that corn and soybeans are planted. Actually, we're only in corn here. Also, V8 to V9 on corn, R5, and right before harvest and right after harvest. So she just started that at two locations. Havelock, uh, which is just east of town here, on Havelock, and then out at Clay Center. Also, it's got several species involved there, and you can see that. Here's a, I'll, I'll flash you a couple pictures here. This is what happens when you plant. Uh, that top one is rye with corn. At the same time that corn is planted, uh, a lot of stress. She just is pulling harvest right now, but I, I don't think you need statistics for some of these comparisons like this one. Yields will be reduced versus the control. The same with the corn in the mixture. Gets a little better when you add, well, not radish, but gets a little better when you add veg. And the soybean really was not competitive with the corn at all. It's a little bit better when she broadcast uh, at dense stage, as you can see in these next photographs here. So a lot of changes, a lot of interactions. I'll close up by talking about one, uh, another study that Chris Proctor helped think about. This is one that we're working with Bill Kranz on. Bill Kranz is up at Northeast, where we've got seven different hybrids of corn from 80 to 115 day hybrids. A couple planting dates, different populations. But the idea here, what's the trade-off between corn yield with these early and late season hybrids and the ability to get cover crops planted sooner. So that's what we've done here. This has not been processed at all other than Excel, so they're just fresh data. But I just wanted to show you, I think this conceptualizes what we're thinking. When you plant the early season, the 80-day hybrid, about 150, 60 bushel yields, up to about 258, 260 with the 115-day hybrid. So those are corn yields, this is just clay center data here. But when you add in, the, uh, the idea of the 80-day hybrid is that when it gets down to 18% moisture content, and we modeled that, then you should be able to harvest that and plant cover crops. So that's what I'm simulating here, planting cover crops when that 80-day hybrid was planted. But then I'm looking at heat units based a 3277 uh, system. So it's a zero 25 degrees Celsius heat unit comparison that's used for cool season grasses, you can see that we get a lot of more heat unit accumulation. It just makes sense. You're planting them maybe a month earlier uh, if you can harvest that. So there's a trade-off between getting uh, the cover crop planted early and getting dry matter establishment and, and reducing corn yields. So what I also did is took that those heat units to actually to, uh, through Tuesday this week, the 3rd of November, and calculated how many leaves would those cover crops have based on uh, about 112 heat units per leaf of production there. So you can see we might have, if we could have seeded right then, an eight leaf uh, rye plant, which would mean uh, probably a rye plant with uh, two to three tillers on it, six leaf. So there's a dramatic difference here between a two leaf uh, uh, rye plant now and an eight leaf plant. So. That's the direction we're hoping to go. That's kind of conceptual, but that's the idea. So 
with that, as you're thinking about your questions, if I can get this. So do, do you have questions? I might have a minute. Here's a, a time lapse that Justin put together, Radish. Uh, you can see where the crops are. It's basically a 28-day cycle of where you can see the, the, the radish and the vetch and the rye and the mixture is growing. But, you know, you know I, I picture this as a scientist. I, I'm, the thing, I'm, the full circle is, is scientists are stewards. And how can we be good stewards of, of the resources that we have? And that's why I'm excited to be part of what we're doing. Thank you.